This is the WTF Bach Podcast. This is the podcast about all things Johann Sebastian Bach. Brought to you by Evan Shinners. WTF Bach. Brought to you by Evan Shinners. Join WTF Bach as he guides your mind through a contrapuntal journey. And now, here's WTF Bach. Hi, it's Evan. You may call me Evan. You may call me W. You may call me Evan Shinners. You could call me WTF Bach. You could, if you wished, call me Virgil, as I guide you, inspired poet, through the contrapuntal 14 layers of this divine comedy known as the Kunst of the Fugue. That's my Orson Welles radio impression. This is the end, my friend, or this was the end. To some extent in Bach's mind here, this 11th contrapuntus was a sort of finale to the early version of the Art of Fugue. You see, sometime around 1746, Bach completed an autographed version of the Art of Fugue, which we in the business call P200. This is the name of the source. They call it P200, this autograph copy. So when you're talking shop with Christoph Wolf, you could say, are you referring to the original print, Christoph, or are you referring to P200? It's still the art of fugue, but it is quite a bit different. I covered some of these early versions in a bonus episode from April 17th, 2020, and I mentioned it in the previous episode as well, but this fugue, number 11, was the longest fugue in this original version. After it came, as it appears to me, sort of an appendix of fugues, the two so-called mirror fugues sandwiched between two canons, but it strikes me that this fugue, this number 11, was originally the most complicated and the longest fugue in the art of fugue. And then something happened. Bach, always the modernist, always looking for that perfection, decided to tack on a still more complicated fugue after number 11. And yes, that is number 14, the quadruple fugue, the so-called unfinished fugue. And when doing so, he established a more clean structure, a more organized bird's-eye view, so to speak, of this whole work. I had written out exactly what Bach had done in revision, but as I tried to speak it out, I realized it's sort of nearly impossible to visualize it. And in the last episode, I got a lot of feedback about how you all enjoyed the sort of solar system analogy to explain a key. So now I'm going to use a fruit analogy to explain the original order of the art of few. Does this blow your mind? This blow your this mind? Blow your mind? Bach lined up his fruit. On the left, he had three strawberries. In the middle, he had five pieces of round fruit. One orange, two apples, and two more oranges. And then on the right side, he had all this exotic fruit. A piece of dragon fruit, some Asian pears, more dragon fruit, two star fruits, and then more dragon fruit. Now, I'm almost laughing at how ridiculous this sounds. But he looked at all these fruits, and he saw the ones which were not grouped together. He saw those apples mixed in with the oranges, and he said, Ach, fine, these are both round fruits but actually the apples are more close related in species to the Asian pear. So he lifts the apples out of the middle, leaving the three oranges together. Prokofiev puns, welcome. Then with the dragon fruit, he said, okay, these are nice, but they look like nothing else here. So I'll put these aside, sort of as like a dessert. Now, if we look at the new fruit lineup, we find strawberries, oranges now together, four apple-like fruits, two star fruits, which because of their excellent symmetry can be eaten upside down, and then these exotic dragon fruits on the end for dessert. What I'm trying to get you to see is that Bach sort of had a mixture of stuff lined up initially, but when stepping back, when he rearranged it, it became more clear, these bones, the underlying principles of each fruit. The chapters of structure naturally emerged from the music he had composed first and organized only later. 
for me, as someone writing music and creating in the modern era, that's a really fascinating thing to see is that he had the content first and only later organized it into the overarching structure. That's an interesting point. Now, if you're curious to see if you passed this fruit quiz, yes, the Asian pears are the triple fugues, the star fruits are the mirror fugues, the apples are the double fugues, and the dragon fruits, those exotic things at the end, the cannons. Did you get them all right? Uh, DM me and I'll send you a fruit basket. Okay, one final point is that once this structure became clear to Bach, he said, this fugue, this number 11 fugue, it doesn't make for a good enough finale. I still really need a really, really complicated piece of fruit, like uh, papaya or a pomegranate. And that fruit became the final fruit. So I don't know if that visualization helped you or if it only made you hungry. But now that we understand in general the sense of what went on from revision to the final version. Let's take a look at the music. So these chapters, these so-called chapters in the Art of Fugue, they started with simple fugues, then they went on to stretto fugues, and now we are in the third chapter of compound fugues. So the first seven fugues in the Art of Fugue begin with some sort of version of the Art of Fugue subject. We either have something like this, or we have maybe the upside-down version. Or we have something a little filled in like this. But once we get to Fugue 8, that is the fugue that begins the compound fugue chapters, he boldly begins with a new subject. And I think that's really wonderful because that's like Bach saying, okay, here we are already in a chapter of compound fugues, and this this new subject here will be combined with that Art of Fugue theme that you've already heard seven times. Then in Fugue number nine, he starts again. That uh, lively theme. And in Fugue 10, this one. Finally, in Fugue 11, it's the finale of this compound fugue chapter, and he brings us back home. He says, okay... Here we go. Finally, you're going to hear the good old Art of Fugue theme again at the beginning, and it sounds like this. Now, to bring you back to the original version of that Art of Fugue theme, as it appeared in the first Contrapuntus, I'm going to play it in the left speaker as it appeared initially, and now in the right speaker as it comes in the 11th fugue. So you can see it's the same theme, it's just shifted around a little bit. Now, if you recall the 8th contrapuntus, in the episode covering this 8th fugue, the triple fugue, the first triple fugue, I mentioned it is a three-voice fugue, which implies that, yes, in a triple fugue in three voices at one time, for all subjects to appear simultaneously, each voice would have to take up one of the three themes. I played the three subjects, which were this. The second subject, which was... And the third subject, which was... And so maybe already some of you have caught on. That third subject there is an inversion of the subject I just played, which introduces the 11th contrapuntus. 
Here I'll play the inverted subject in my right hand and the regular subject in my left hand. Okay, so now try and get a sense of what Bach is doing here. In this chapter, these four fugues that make up the so-called compound fugue chapter, the eighth fugue was a triple fugue in three voices, fine. The ninth fugue was a double fugue in four voices, fine. In this double fugue, in that fugue number nine, one of the subjects was functional at two different intervals. In the tenth contrapuntus, still slightly more complicated, we now have a double fugue again, but now both subjects are functional at two different intervals. And finally, the 11th fugue, a triple fugue in four voices, but not only four voices, all of the subjects that he uses will be invertible. Now, he didn't do that in the 8th contrapuntus, which uses the same three subjects. He will do that in the 11th one. So, in other words, 11 uses the same three subjects as number 8, but he'll flip all of them upside down. So, you will get, at a certain point, the same direction of the same three themes which appeared in number 8. Okay, maybe it's easier if I illustrate it musically. So, I've already illustrated that this one is an inversion of and we will get both this version and this version in this fugue. This one, which begins number eight, will be inverted in number 11 and therefore sound like this. I've actually never heard both of those upside down occurring simultaneously, so let's put the original version in the left speaker and the inverted version in the right speaker. Okay, that's pretty fascinating. And this repetitive note theme which came in the middle of the eighth fugue will now be initially presented in its inversion in this 11th fugue. So instead of gradually dropping down, we have gradually rising up. So all of this Bach knew in advance. He knew that he was going to compose this triple fugue with those three subjects from fugue number eight, and he knew that he was going to invert them all. So in some respects, no wonder this was originally the conclusion of the early version of the Art of Fugue, because how do you beat a triple fugue in four voices where all three subjects can come in inversion? Oh, I see. You could do it in four voices, and that becomes number 14. So Bach begins his exposition in the alto voice here. My piano is still out of tune. Here's the soprano, the answer. Now in the tenor, excuse me, in the bass. Now here's the tenor. that note, that's the end of the exposition, but we still have a ways to go before the next theme. You have an extra entrance in the soprano there. And now, here we begin. The second subject, immediately in the alto, and it's upside down from contrapuntus 8 and is accompanied by this 
ascending chromatic line in the soprano like this. And immediately accompanied by a descending chromatic line in the bass. So already we see this symmetry of one line going up chromatically, the other line going down chromatically, and this second subject, which is the inversion of the first subject in fugate. There's the bass. Now here is the tenor picking up that same second subject. Okay, a lot of music here. Now the bass picks up the subject. Okay, now we're only missing the soprano. He has yet to sing this theme. Meanwhile, we're in an exciting climax with 16th notes in the soprano. We'll now sing a descending chromatic line all the way from the top. But now what's this in the soprano? Not the inverted subject, not the subject upside down like this, but rather... So what Bach did there with the second theme was first introduce it upside down in the alto, then upside down in the tenor, then upside down in the bass, and then finally he skips all of that in the soprano and he says, you know what, I'm going to play this as we saw this in Fugue 8 to show you immediately that everything will come upside down. Okay, now we have a really wildly chromatic section. I'm not even going to tell you where there's another entrance in the bass voice. Bonus points if you hear it, but I mean, this, this music from here on out is so super chromatic. Yes, you heard that correctly in the upper two voices there. Is this pair of descending chromatic parallel fourths. Show this to your counterpoint teacher, right? And then say, is, is, this, is this sort of part writing allowed? That comes over, the, over your bonus points there, which is the entrance in the bass voice. same second subject like this. Just unbelievable writing. Right after that amazing chromatic descent, we have a very dramatic entrance of the artifugue theme in the tenor, but it's not facing this way as it was in the beginning of this contrapuntus, it's facing this way. So instead of bringing in the third subject in this triple fugue, Bach forgoes that and he says, okay, now time for the first subject again, but upside down. And listen to the way that it's supported in the other voices. 
lot of space. And now in the soprano, the art of fugue. Now in the bass. Already there is the secret alto entrance. Okay, it was a little banged out there, but really what we had was tenor, soprano, bass, and alto. So that's like a full exposition of the first theme, but now an inversion from whence it came. Going on, this third theme. But that's right, if you heard that, that is a stretto of the third theme. And it came over the second theme there. That's very impressive. After Bach brings in that sort of second exposition of the upside-down first theme, he's immediately going to combine the second and third themes and stretto them. And then the soprano came in there with the third theme. Now I could go on and on like this because this fugue is indeed rich, but I just want to play for you some of this section here that we're in the midst of. It's like the combinations of the second theme and this third theme. Uh, because a passage like this, This music here, I mean, when you slow down Bach like that and you look at him like through a microscope, it just becomes so amazing and so wacky and weird. And that little section there is when the, finally this, the artifugue subject returns in the alto. this unbelievably expressive thing in the soprano in triplets. See, everything so far has been either quarter notes, eighth notes, or sixteenth notes. Everything has been in divisions of two. But when this, when it comes, the Art of Fugue theme in the midst of this complicated section, the soprano does this really expressive three against two motif here. Listen to it. Okay, I have to pause because... I could go on and on saying, okay, now comes the third theme in inversion against the second theme in regular and the first theme is played twice as slow or something like this. But after all that stuff, it's sort of sterile to Bach. I mean, that's just sort of like his repertoire. That's his vocabulary. That's what he does. But one thing which really makes me marvel, and I don't know if I've ever seen this in other compositions of Bach, 
is the concept of the golden section. Now, I've mentioned this many times before. It's like the Fibonacci sequence. It's the golden ratio. You take two numbers in the Fibonacci sequence, divide them by each other, and you get this sort of irrational number. I believe it's phi, right? Which goes on and on and on and on. Essentially, uh, you can calculate the golden section of any piece of music by multiplying the number of bars times point. 618. So this fugue has 184 bars. And if I find the golden section of that, I get 113.7. Now, in 113, in bar 113, this is going on. I mean, it's nothing spectacular. A couple, a couple, but what? Well, spectacular, excuse me. But I mean, it's nothing like, you know, that makes you think, ah, that's going on in the golden section. Uh, but in bar 117, that's a few bars after this. This, this sort of, you know, parallel, parallel going down in this uh, third subject, that might be something that Bach would put at a golden section. But it's like, you know, four bars later. So I thought, well, since obviously Bach isn't doing this with a calculator and figuring this out, maybe that's sort of where he felt the golden section was. And so he put in this big long slide. And then it was brought to my attention that since this fugue is the inversion of all of the themes in Fugue 8. Well, what if there's an inversion of a golden section? Hang with me here. 184 bars, 184 measures, multiplied by 0.618, as I said, gives us 113 point something, something, something. Which would imply that the golden section, like I said, is at bar 113, halfway through the bar. But what if I subtract... 113 from 184. In other words, like not find 0.618 of the way from the beginning, but find 0.618 of the way from the end. Well, that brings us to, and this is what's unbelievable, because I said Bach isn't doing this with a calculator, or is he? If I subtract 113 bars from 184, it's bar 71. And what happens at bar 71? That very dramatic moment that very dramatic tenor entrance of the Art of Fugue theme in inversion. In other words, that's that chromatic slide in parallel fourths. And then sort of like the anti-golden section. And I, I think this is absolutely phenomenal that this, this could be behind Bach's thinking. We'll never know for certain, but this could be something that he calculated. He thought, well, since this fugue is the opposite of everything that's in fugue eight, why don't we do the opposite of a golden section? I really, really think that's, that's possibly what's going on. And that's just, to me, that's just incredible. This fugue for me is really marked by this reoccurring uh, triple note motive. And although this might not necessarily be a sacred work, one has to wonder what the emphasis on three meant for a, a Christian like Bach. Uh, but at bar 122 here, we have like this just amazingly dramatic, persistent motive. I mean, that's really, really dramatic music, and it continues and continues and continues, really. Thank you. 
that's in all four voices there. That's at bar 130. Finally, at bar 145, we have our first combination of all three themes. In the alto, this theme. In the soprano, and in the tenor. So the combination sounds like this. It's quite, quite complicated stuff. And then before our next combination of all three, we have something which I think maybe gave Bach the thought that he could create this quadruple fugue where he inverted all the subjects at the same time as it says in the obituary notice of Bach. He has the Art of Fugue theme coming in the top two voices at the same time in various directions, like this. Which is immediately echoed in the lower two voices, also in inversion, at the same time, like this. I mean, taken out of context, that sounds really, really wild. Let's hear that again. I mean, one of those voices is playing B natural, the other voice playing B flat, and it's back and forth between the two. But when you put it in context... It becomes Bach. We have two more combinations of all three, therefore making it three combinations of all three, a nice symmetry. And the second one occurs in the bottom three voices like this. And immediately right when that voice there, that alto voice stops, we have the next one beginning now in the soprano and the tenor and the bass. And with that last utterance, we have in fact the cadence of the entire fugue. And he adds an extra voice in the soprano to sing those parallel thirds. So I think we understand the guts of it. I think we understand the texture, the sound of it. So let's hear finally a full recording of it. Now, here is a disclaimer. I'm going to play Glenn Gould. I haven't yet played Gould on this podcast for several reasons. One being that I think he's so unbelievably famous that any recording of his I play might get immediately pulled down. So if that does happen and you hear silence when I start playing this recording. It is five minutes and 50 seconds long, so go ahead and skip to six minutes after and just look it up on your own time. It's Gould playing the 11th Contrapuntist from the Art of Fugue. Now, I thought I should play this recording for several reasons, because this is so unbelievably Gould. Like, you can hear quite glaringly a lot of the edits that he's made in this recording. You can hear a couple wrong notes, which is rare for a Gould recording, but he highlights in changes of tempo the different expositions of the subject. So in other words, this, you'll hear he takes it at quite a stately tempo. 
And then when this second theme comes in, he's off to the races, like this. And then, at that moment of parallel fourths, he does this great retard and announces again the first subject, now in inversion, in that slow tempo. And then at the end of what is sort of like the, another exposition of that theme and inversion, this. He goes off to the races again. So I really hope you enjoy it, but uh, you know, as with all things Gould, use discretion.
Good game, GG. And it's as Richard Good said, it's fascinating that this music, that the same music, could give rise to so many different interpretations. To me, this contrapuntus is one of the most fascinating and probably the greatest were it not for that 14th contrapuntus which Bach only later added. It is so chromatic, it is so complicated with how he changes and inverts all three of these subjects. It's so dense that were I to really, as I said earlier, were I to really show you exactly where each voice is coming with which theme and which subject, it would just, it would just take me forever to explain it. So I think we should rather cherish just the sound of this and listen to it. We'll hear it with uh, an electronic version of it where some of the voices are sort of panned into the different speakers and you're able to hear that squeeze in a way that you really couldn't hear on a keyboard instrument such as a piano or a harpsichord, that electric squeeze, if you will. I think really the only way to get further into this contrapuntus is to take it into your own hands, play it, listen to different recordings of it, see what you can make of this giant fugue, this fugue number 11 in the Art of Fugue. The episode following this one, since this is now the close, the final fugue in the Compound Fugue chapter, will be a bonus episode about the next canon in the series of four canons that mark each chapter in the Art of Fugue. So thanks very much for listening, and stay tuned.
Friday. You can support Evan at patreon.com slash WTF You want to partner with WTF podcast? Write us. Send us a donation on Venmo, Cash App, or PayPal at WTF Find the links in the episode description. Happy Ricky out there, so thank you for listening today. You, we can't even know, we can't even know how thankful we are for our podcast.